Hi, I'm Lena Nguyen, a former New South Wales police lawyer. And I'm Mark Davidson, a former police sniper and detective. The lawyer, the sniper and the New South Wales police is our story, told in the hope that others who have come up against the entrenched culture of law enforcement from within might find ways to speak more openly so we can all make changes to the system. Our focus is on how police responded in the aftermath of both of our stories. We're passionate about justice and we're determined to add our voices to calls for change so no one else is discarded as we were. In this second episode, we continue my story and you'll hear what went on when I attempted to seek justice from the New South Wales Police Force. At the end of the last episode, we left Lena alone in a dark park and I asked her to go back to what happened next. So, Mark, I went to my car and I just passed out in the back of my car. I woke up a couple of hours later and then I drove home. So it would have been about one o'clock in the morning. Went home, went to sleep, woke up the next morning and immediately thought of what had happened the night before and I was still in a definitely state of shock and disbelief and even self-doubting. I mean, I was very logical in thinking about having to report it, but in terms of replaying it back in my head the previous 12 hours, it was just a combination of shock and a blur. And it wasn't until I went into the bathroom and looked in the mirror and found noticed bits of grass in my hair that that had confirmed for me that I was in a park and that I must have been lying down and really the thoughts in my head was what am I going to do now I thought about the immediate consequences of saying something and reporting it I knew what that meant in terms of an investigation I was petrified by that by the consequences but then I just thought of well what if I don't what do I do just go to work and then what yeah. And then I see him in the meal room, and then what? So the pathway of making a report, whilst I was extremely fearful by that, I knew it was the the only option for me. As a lawyer, you've done training as a, as a lawyer and learned about evidence and admissibility, and and now you're in a situation where a horrible things happen to you, and you want to you, you need to report it. What were you thinking as a trained lawyer in that sense? Look, being a lawyer and having my professional training and skill set did help me in some ways. I am very good at compartmentalising things and thinking very rashly and logically when I need to. So I think that part of me kicked in and definitely helped me get through the following 48 hours. But it's still a very strange experience and very surreal and also at the time I was working in the forensics command where I had been part of you know planning for how we get doctors to do intimate forensic procedures and and all that sort of thing so all of a sudden my professional world I'm not just acting as a professional in the system I'm now an actual victim complainant and very much a user in the system with direct first-hand lived experience of it so the best way I can explain it is yes it did my training helped me but at times it probably didn't help me as well because there were times where I 
didn't allow myself to be a victim or to feel the emotions and the trauma because I was, my professional brain was in gear. But at the same time, it did, it did protect me as well from the trauma. So, for example, when I talk about not being able to feel emotions, I mean, for a long time I wasn't able to cry appropriately. Wow. And as a very sensitive person, that's very, a very strange experience. So once I made a decision to report, I said, how am I going to do that? So I decided to send a text message to a very close colleague of mine who's a commissioned officer, and I thought I'd send him a text message. I won't disclose it to him. I'll just send him a message saying, can you call me, please? That way I've committed, I've taken one step, but I haven't committed completely to the disclosure. So that was about seven in the morning. I decided to have a shower, which from a forensic point of view, I probably shouldn't have, but I needed to have a shower, so I did. I went to the toilet as well, which from a forensic point of view, I probably would have been better off not going to the toilet, but, you know, I can't control my bodily fluids. And then after that, I decided, what do I do next? I just thought, well, I'll go and have breakfast. (laughs) So I went to a cafe. So what happened after that? By then it was about 10am and I realised it had been about three hours, hadn't heard from him, so I started to get quite anxious. I was in the cafe alone I started to cry. The waitress noticed. She came and offered me tissues. That first 48 hours I would describe as just numbness. If you ask me how did I feel, everything was just numb. Right. So, yes, I did have an emotion, emotional physiological response. I was crying. Yes. But just numb. I just um, I get quite teary when I think about it being in the cafe and there was an elderly man he approached me he saw I was very distressed and he was just so kind and so sweet just having experienced something so abusive and violent not long before and having to experience kindness it's it's very very hard to accept but he was such a sweet elderly man I remember he had a glassy eye I left I, and he came up to me and he said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. He said, has has somebody upset you? I said, yes, they have. I said, I'm going to the hospital. I need to get to a hospital. He said, well, can I call you an ambulance? Or there's a nurse here. I know a nurse, she's here. I said, no, that's okay. I'll... I'm not far away, I've got a car and I can drive. But he was so kind. Don't know his name, don't know who he is, but just a moment in time out of just a pure kindness, good hearted stranger just comforted me in a moment and he wouldn't have not known, had no idea what had just happened to me. So I'll always remember him. Yeah, that's nice to hear that uh, amidst such mental anguish and turmoil and stress that uh, such a cathartic experience has just appeared out of nowhere. So you went from the cafe to the hospital where you had an examination done? Well, I have to say the hospital was great. They immediately had the local sexual assault service there. They were on call, so I had a first response worker immediately. Just incredible support. And there's a lot of waiting around. And so they're very, very experienced and understanding of knowing that 
you know, the waiting is also stressful and they're very good at communicating. And so I was just waiting around, waiting for a doctor to arrive to then conduct the forensic procedure on me. It's, it's very intrusive. I mean, even, you know, I got asked questions and... And then the procedure itself, it's, yeah, very intrusive. Being in this cold, sterile room and then sort of lying there and having a long, cold implement inserted in my body, essentially, to look for his DNA. And I remember the moment when I felt that implement scrape against me. And when it made contact deep inside me, without, I mean, how any person would put themselves through that I shed a tear in that moment knowing that they were looking for his DNA Um, so there's that part of it So what was the next what happened after the examination or or the days after the examination when did you make your statement did you say? Well I left the hospital, it would have been about four o'clock in the afternoon and I had a detective inspector female contact me and offered to come over to my place that evening. So we, I arranged for her to, and her detective sergeant to be at my house that night. They asked me what happened, so they were there for a couple of hours. They took my clothing, put them away in brown paper bags and arranged for me to be at the police station the next day to give my police statement. So up to this point, as far as you can determine, things were proceeding normally in regards to a, um, a sexual assault investigation. Would that be fair to say? Yes, from both a professional point of view but also from a, a victim-centred point of view. Mm. The hospital was great. The sexual assault service was great. The police, who I had disclosed to, as well as my boss, were very, very senior, very experienced police. What was the first major update that you received? Do you remember? Because you knew the person that did this to you. Yes, a major update was that the perpetrator had been spoken to, so he was aware of my report, and I was really relieved by that. I hoped and thought that was a sign that he was being held to account and that the investigation was moving quickly and efficiently. Updates about all the witnesses that had been interviewed, all the CCTV that had been gathered, a lot of work had been done and that gave me confidence that they had, the investigators were acting quickly. What was the next significant thing that happened after you made your statement? Look, by, th- by then it was leading up to Christmas and so it was really just about spending time with my family. I was off work anyway and it was about me getting the appropriate medical and support services that I needed. So there was a lot of appointments throughout January with doctors and psychologists and with the police being updated on the investigation. What was really, really important to me, very important to me, was that I would get back to work, that I could have as much normality as possible to maintain my routines. And I made it clear to everyone around me that I wanted to be back at work and particularly to my boss. made it absolutely clear to him that I wanted to be back at work and I had that goal and that I was determined to achieve that. Do you know how many days 
passed from the time this happened to you to the time you went back to work? The sexual assault was on the 20th of December 2019. So I went back the first week of February. My job was at Parramatta headquarters. Unfortunately, I was not allowed to return to my job. I was basically very, very, very strongly encouraged to work in a city office. I was essentially excluded and isolated while the perpetrator remained in his job at police headquarters. What reasons were given to you for that? The official reason was because I'd spoken to my boss. We had a phone conversation in a moment of expressing my gratitude to him for everything that he'd done in terms of the response, the Mm. critical response. I started to cry in expressing my emotion and he said to me that because I was crying that indicated to him that I was too stressed and too anxious and not coping and not ready to come back to work. I said, no, no, I was expressing my gratitude to you. He said, no, no, you're not. You're too distressed. You You can't come back to work. So what was going through your head at this point? I definitely felt a sense of unfairness. I was extremely disappointed because we'd come to an agreement that I would come back to work at police headquarters. All I knew was that I, look, I wanted to know in, by mid-January, I wanted to know what had happened to him. Was he at work? Was he suspended? What have they done to him? It was, it was expressed to me that he hadn't been suspended. He was still at work and he would remain there and I would be the one who would be moved. So up to this point, you've reported it, you'd made a statement, you had a a pretty horrendous examination done at the hospital. Things were going in accordance, as much as you could tell, with how an investigation would go of this nature. And you you were, in a sense, happy with the progress of the investigation. Is that fair to say, up to this point? Yes. So then you, you turn up to work to continue on with your work as best as you can. Yes to normalise things, if I can use that term, and then you're the one made to be removed from your workplace. Is this where things changed in terms of your thoughts about how things were progressing? Look, it was definitely the first red flag, but I was still in this place of wanting to trust that they would do the right thing by me. And when I arrived at that workplace, I mean, no disrespect to the people who were there, but it was clearly a dumping ground. It was an office full of injured people or people who were being performance managed or otherwise at the end of their careers or was a dumping ground for people that the organisation either had no place for or wanted to remove people that were very unwell. There were people who were unstable, people who were on return to work plans. There were clearly people who were unable to manage their emotions and their behaviour in the workplace. So that's a pretty extraordinary fall from where you were working. I was a professional, I was a lawyer, I had been promoted to a very senior civilian role supporting a police officer in a senior executive service, was part of the senior management team, I had weekly Monday morning briefings with commanders, superintendents, it was part of my job to report to the executive and to organise briefings and then I found myself isolated and excluded 30 kilometres away from my usual workplace, doing work that wasn't part of my usual work. 
with a group of people, for all intents and purposes, that are hard for the police service to manage. Would that be fair to say? Yes. That's extraordinary. How long did you stay there working in that capacity? Well, the plan was that there was no time frame. It was indefinite. I was there for four or five months. And when there was no more excuses left, I was asked to come to a meeting in September 2020 and I was told that my job was no longer required. My job no longer ex- existed or was required and that I no longer had my, my job no longer Basically, I'd lost my job. <laughs> so, in effect, at this point, you're made redundant. Is that is that what happened? Yes. But we've got another job for you. Hasn't really been developed yet, but it's in this other location. And you can go there and we'll develop a new role for you. It just seems strange to me as, as someone from the outside looking in. Initially, you start out, you, you've got all this responsibility. You, you're an important person, having an important input into uh, significant things that are happening in the police, advising high-ranking senior officers. You're then subject of a horrendous sexual violent crime. Then you report it. You're a victim. You're a complainant. Then you all all of a sudden move to a insignificant role and told you're no longer required, your services are no longer required in the the police. That's essentially the timeline or the chronology of what happened. Is that right? Yes, that's what happened, except the organisation says I was going to be made redundant anyway before the sexual assault and the sexual assault had nothing to do with it. Right, they told you that. And at this point I wanted to ask you, how was this sexual assault investigation going? So in March 2020, I was called to a meeting and the investigators told me that there was not enough evidence to proceed with criminal charges. They explained to me the legal analysis that was applied to that decision as well. I found part of that legal analysis flawed. Right. Are you able to share what part of it was flawed or is...? Uh, Yes. Look, sexual assault is a very technical criminal offence to prove in terms of the elements. There's the element of, of proving that I didn't consent but also that the perpetrator knew I didn't consent and those are technical under the Crimes Act. It wasn't just the legal analysis that I disagreed with fundamentally. They failed to take a trauma-informed approach to my investigation. I felt that they didn't take into account the impact of trauma on my memory and my behaviour. I found the evaluation of the evidence very black and white, very rudimentary, lacking in sufficient knowledge about what consent means. But apart from that, I was also concerned the fact that I was a civilian officer. He was a police officer, police investigating police. There were inherent risks in that as well. So I really wanted an independent third party to have a look at it. And did did that happen? It did. I wrote a fairly thorough submission outlining the risks to the investigation and to the organisation if they didn't get it reviewed by the DPP and they accepted that and they did send it to the DPP. And by November... 2020, I was told that the DPP also said there wasn't enough to charge. So I started to join the dots. I was told my job was no longer required. I was prevented from going back to work. But then also joining the dots with how hard the police were fighting my workers' compensation claim as well. Can you tell us about that? I was using my own personal sick leave for a matter that wasn't my fault. So I just wondered whether there was a potential there 
in terms of seeking some kind of other leave or workers' compensation, then that was knocked back by the insurer. They said it wasn't work-related. I did dispute it and then found myself in a legal conflict with the organisation over that. I was willing to settle the matter. The organisation wanted to fight it. So they took it to an arbitration and they lost. Right. The final clincher was when I was called to a meeting to say that in terms of the internal discipline proceedings, which is separate to the criminal matter, I was told that nothing would be happening to him. There'd be absolutely no disciplinary action. And I drove home from work that afternoon knowing that it wasn't a safe environment for me to go back. When did you think enough was enough? 16th of November 2020, I was called into a meeting with the Professional Standards Command and the detectives, and I was told to my face, it has been decided that he's done nothing wrong, nothing's going to happen to him. And I said, hang on, police get reprimanded for leaving their OC spray, their capsicum spray at home. What happens when they rape someone? They had no answer for that. I left that meeting and I drove home. I remember being in my car thinking, I can't go back to work. There were so many red flags throughout that year, but the penny dropped then. It's been my experience that if a police officer is subject to a criminal complaint and there's not enough to proceed with a prosecution, there still can be departmental action taken in terms of behavioural restrictions or uh, punitive punishment or docking increments in pay and stuff like that. So so he was basically exonerated from any type of departmental action or punishment whatsoever. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Police get disciplined for not wearing uniform, accessing a system when, not, when they're not supposed to failing to document investigations, could be anything, a whole range of matters. In fact, one month before I made my sexual assault complaint, there was a leading senior constable at Botany Local Area Command who'd lost his job because on a WhatsApp group with other police officers, he'd written what was found to be sexist and racist comments on a WhatsApp group. He lost his job over that. Wow. That's a publicly reported decision in the New South Wales Industrial Relations Commission. The commissioner was scathing said it brought the New South Wales Police Force into disrepute, that it was in breach of sexual harassment and discrimination policies, that it was not acceptable and totally intolerable, which I totally agree with. But for some reason in my case, a completely different approach was taken. So we're at a point where you've decided that you couldn't go back and work in this environment. What, what then did you intend to do about it? So I sought legal advice and... I commenced a civil complaint in sexual harassment. Their criminal justice system, I wasn't able to get justice from that legal system. So I looked to the civil legal system, which is where you can sue people. And based on that advice, I found that I had very substantial protections and rights under employment law for sexual harassment, victimisation and discrimination. And because I've sued my former employer, I've been able to see the criminal brief of evidence and the investigation report. And it's a very unique position to be in because normally as a victim complainant in a criminal matter, you would never get to see that. 
So I've actually now been able to see all the evidence, all the reasoning that was applied to it, and unfortunately all the flaws. And uh, can you explain some of the flaws for our listeners that are important? There were something like 20 witness statements that were prepared. Bearing in mind, these are witness statements that police had put together that they were willing to put before a jury. And I was shocked at the contents of those statements, Well, firstly from a legal point of view, but even from an ethical and moral point of view. Why were you shocked? There were statements from people about my appearance, the way I dance. There was evidence about boys talk about whether or not I was wearing underwear. There was one woman in the office who was a work colleague who I remember at work would often compliment me on how I dress and on my appearance. And then I found in her witness statement, she said she didn't want to be seen with me because I dressed like a slut. So apart from the shock of having to read the sexual vilification that was in these statements, just even from a legal point of view, I found it difficult as a professional to understand how those statements were relevant and how those opinions went to proving whether or not I was sexually assaulted. So these statements that you're talking about that are containing all this uh, opinion and inadmissible evidence, they were taken by trained detectives at a major crime squad or at a serious crime investigation squad, is that right? Or were they well, junior yes, the, experienced detectives that took them? Very, very experienced detectives in the professional standards command. Because what you're describing to me in terms of what goes into a witness statement is stuff that you learn at the police academy, like police cadets and, and recruits are taught what you can elicit from a witness and put into a statement, and, and it's got to be admissible. In a criminal investigation, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can't put opinion and hearsay evidence. Like what's, what's a plausible reason for them inserting all this inadmissible evidence? Combination of incompetence, lack of knowledge, ignorance, not having the skill, and being biased, whether that was conscious or not. It was very much a boy's culture coming out in those statements. Boys protecting boys, mates protecting mates. But none of them saw anything, that's the thing. None of them were able to give any direct evidence of whether they saw the sexual assault or saw the interaction. In fact, I was in a pub full of police and his colleagues. They knew we weren't a couple. They knew he was married. They knew there was no reason for him to be standing in front of me in a, on a bar stool up against the wall. Yet no one saw anything, no one intervened, no one thought anything was wrong. I was just the, the drunk outsider who dressed and behaved poorly. According to them. In their view. So now, what is your perspective on the New South Wales police culture? My perspective on the culture is that it's deeply problematic. I... I am deeply concerned about the culture of cover-ups and just this culture of protecting reputations at all costs. Lena, what do you want to come out of your experience with all this? Mark, for me, first off, is that I want my story and my truth to come out because I've gone from having a job, a career, a senior civilian position working for 
an assistant commissioner to one day not being there anymore. And in the police, if you're not there anymore, they think you've done something wrong. And attempts have been made to silence me. And that's not going to happen. They doubted my resilience and they doubted my resolve and they tested my resolve. And they can test it all they want, but I'm not going to be silenced. Secondly, for me, it's about dropping the facade, Mark. Just drop it. Stop pretending that integrity means something to you when you're not acting like that as an organisation and as a culture. From my experience, integrity just means don't get caught. And this is something that we'll discuss in further episodes with our special guests. Thanks so much, Lena, for what you've shared. You're welcome, Mark. In the next episode, I talk Mark through what happened the day he was the lead sniper at the Lint Cafe siege in Martin Place, December 2014. It's a harrowing tale and there are details that have never really been discussed in public that point to gross mismanagement. This podcast was initiated by us, Mark Davidson and Lena Nguyen. The executive producer is Gretchen Miller with sound engineering from Judy Rapley. If you've experienced sexual assault of any kind or family or domestic violence, please call the National Counselling Line on 1800 737 732. That's 1800 RESPECT. Thanks for listening. See you next time.